every pastor, preacher's favorite song to sing and talks about the, like the goal of preaching really is to put the glory of God on display so that every heart and tongue confesses the lordship of Christ. And that is, that's like my prayer for us today um, as we get into um, the, talking about the offices. We're doing a sermon series on the church, the beloved. We're talking about the offices today. Just to quickly recap over the past few weeks where we've been and to bring us up to speed of what it is that we're going to be talking about today. I want to remind us that the first week of our series, we talked about the incredible love that God has for his bride, and we talked about it in the way of God's love for his universal church, from all, for all believers, from all time, um, anybody that's been found in Christ is part of that universal church, and God has just an incredibly wonderful, real love for his bride, and if you're a believer, you're a part of that that bride and in his love for us as his people is unparalleled, it's unmatched, it's incredible. It's so incredible that he's actually designed to change you because of it and through it. His love doesn't leave you where you are. His love grows you, it sanctifies you, it changes you. And so we talked about that. We talked about the love then, that vertical love that he gives to us is then to be displayed in the church horizontally. This love that he's given to us is to be practiced with one another. God never gives us his love. He never pours his love out into our hearts so that we may just become these stagnant bowls or pools of his love, but that we would be conduits by which his love is then um, expressed horizontally towards one another. But that love is, is guarded, it it's flows as it's supposed to, as it is guided by the truth of God's word. And so God's word defines for us what real love is and what does it look like and how do we do it. And we looked at Philippians chapter one in Paul's prayer to the church in Philippi in that way to help us where he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more according to all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent. And then so uh, be pure and blameless and, bl and bear fruit until the day of Christ Jesus. And so love goes out horizontally, but it does, it flows best within the boundaries of, of God's word, the truth. And then we looked at last week that the truth of the matter is that we're commanded to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as believers. The Holy Spirit has created a bond of peace within us, and as believers, we are commanded to diligently and fervently seek to maintain that unity of the spirit and that bond of peace, and that we're called to edify one another, that as believers, we should be looking to, when we gather together, especially corporately, looking together to sing and praise the, the, un, the matchless name of our God and Savior, to worship and glorify him, but then we are also called to edify one another and to build one another up in the faith. Um, and we're challenged to examine whether or not we do that. Is that the perspective that we have when we come and we gather together? Do you have the perspective that I'm here to worship God first? My first call is to come and to worship him because he's worthy. And then next I am called to build up and to edify those who are around me. And we were challenged to think that if that is what I'm called to do and to edify my brothers and sisters in Christ, then what does that say about sometimes my casual approach to just being at church? If you're part of this body and you're not using your gift, um, 
you're not functioning the way that God has called us to function. And if you want to function the way that God's called you to function and use your gift, it just let's just start by being here and, um, and being present with one another to use those gifts. And today we want to talk about the offices. And specifically, we're going to spend time talking about the offices of elders and deacons. I know for some that this is a touchy subject. Um, our own natural inclination towards um, unsubmissiveness because of the fall, right? We have a challenge in and of itself to submit ourselves to those who are in authority and to leadership. We're suspicious of their motives. Um, we wonder why they do what they do, what's really in it for them, those people who are in positions of authority, and our natural bend towards independence and autonomy is not helping the matter as well. So because of the fall, we naturally are suspicious of those who are in positions of authority, and we also have a natural bend towards independence and autonomy um, and those two things are not working in our favor when it comes to what the scripture says about um, authority and its proper use and really the good and the benefit that it plays in our lives. Um, I am also aware and I know that there have been many people in this church that have been exposed to poor, very, very poor examples of church leadership in particular. And when you, are, um, when you have been exposed to poor leadership it causes people to withdraw and it causes people to, again, even perpetuates the idea of mistrust of those who are in positions of authority. And those things are difficult. I don't make light of those things at all. There have been documented very, very well and publicly over the years the, the, the horrific abuses um, that have taken place within churches uh, by those who are in a position of spiritual authority. Their, spirit, their position of spiritual authority has been abused. They use it to manipulate others, coerce them into doing things financially, physically, sexually, that are appalling in the eyes of the Lord. And he knows and he sees and he will bring all things into the light and judge appropriately in his due time. Um, there's been all, poor leadership on that scale all the way to other examples of more common day ways that um, church leadership has been abused and misused as well in the lives of people. And so I understand that there are people in this room that have been exposed to those types of things. And I take that into consideration when we talk about what the scripture says about leadership um, and these offices. And my desire, and I think your desire, is for us to know, okay, but what does the scripture say? And how do we then um, work together in a way where we are coming into a place where we see, this is kind of like really my goal is that we would see the offices that God has given to the church and elder and deacon, particularly as it applies to us today, as being good and enjoyable gifts for our benefit that we see being used by God to help us become more like Jesus. These are things that God has, these offices are things like two offices that God has put in place for our good to help us grow to be more like Christ. And it's my prayer that we would not only see them as being for our good, but that we would actually go a step further and enjoy them. Do you enjoy your church leadership? Because you know that ultimately at the end of the day, what they want and what we're all going for and striving for is conformity into the image of Christ and declaration of his lordship and the glory of God. Um, and I think that if we can see leadership in that way, then we will be much more likely to 
do what scripture calls us to do when it comes to church leadership. So I want us to look, um, we're going to pick up where we were last week in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 in particular today. I read through pretty much chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 last week and we talked about the main push that Paul has here is for the believers to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as he says in verse 3, um, that there is one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. So we are in this one body, and he's giving us these gifts because we are part of this body to use, and to use for the edification of one another. And, and so it's no coincidence that he also mentions these offices in this theme of things that are given by God for the good of the body. In other words, he is the one who gives the offices. God is the one who's created the offices. No man created the office that we see that we're going to be talking about in Scripture today. It's by God's own design, and it's a gift. These are offices that he has given as a gift to the church for the purpose of maintaining the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, and the edification of believers. Essentially, elders and deacons' job is to help continue to lead the charge, in, in many ways, in these two things, in maintaining unity and edification and practice of the gift. And our gift is to help people understand their gift, use their gift, and um, to enjoy and appreciate their gift as well. So we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through um, 14, we'll read this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And then he goes on from there to talk about the call of all of us to speak the truth and love to one another. But specifically, I want to talk about the offices today. He's going to mention several offices um, in particular in this passage. And my goal today, I'm going to just tell you right now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of what the, the office of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and things like that are. What I will say is that it's my understanding and belief that the office of apostle and prophet have ceased. The office of evangelist, there is some some debate on that, and I'm open to um, kind of what people are meaning when they're saying the office of the evangelist. But for sure, the office of shepherd and teacher are what Paul continues to teach on and extrapolate on in his pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which we know as the offices of elder and deacon, and we'll get to that. Um, And so what I want to talk about today, really from Ephesians 4, the point that Paul is making here is that he does not um, give qualifications and definitions to each one of these offices. His point here is that they are a gift from God for the good of the church. They are a gift that is to be used for the good and the upbuilding of the church just like any other gift is given by God. And that's very, very clear when we see that in verse 11. And he gave. Who is the he? It is God. God is the one who gives these offices for their purpose. 
Now, if whether or not the regardless of whether or not the office is still open or the office has ceased, it serves a purpose. My understanding and belief, even though I believe that the office of the apostle and the prophet is closed and ceased, it served a function, a very specific, a very important, a very necessary function for the role and the life and the good of the New Testament church as it was springing and, and bursting forth at the seams, Jew, Gentile being included through this wonderful news and message of the gospel that Forgiveness of sin and salvation could be found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people that the Holy Spirit had been preparing to hear that message, and they hear it, and they receive it, and they embrace it, and they rejoice in the fact that they have been given salvation. You're talking about forgiveness of sin. I was thinking about that word forgiveness earlier this week. Such a, a common word that we use. Such a sweet word. What is it like when you have conflict between another person and conflict is dealt with and no longer exists because forgiveness has been granted? The, the relief that comes in that. And the relief for the truth of the believer is that you have been forgiven. You rest and stand in a position of forgiveness in Christ if you know him by faith and by faith alone. Not because anything that you've done, no merit, no works, no goodness of your own, simply by belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and belief in his lordship, that you are forgiven, that you are saved, you have been washed clean, pardoned, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And those people that hear that message and receive it and rejoice are brought into one body, to build one another up, to maintain this unity of spirit and the bond of peace. And God gave these offices to preach the gospel, to lay down new divine truth as God was building his New Testament church, which we now know to be the entirety of the scripture. And now that we have the completed word of God, we have no further need for continued revelation from God because we have all that we need that pertains to life and godliness, as Peter tells us. But he's the continued gift of those who can preach it, those who can teach it, um, continues on today for the goal of building people up. I don't, I don't stand up here, and, never, and, and no pastor, no, there, no preacher should stand up behind the pulpit with the goal of being made much of, being worshipped, being appreciated. The goal of standing up here, I am just simply one part of the body that God has given, I might be the mouth, as you would say, and my goal is to speak what the word of God says and, to, and nothing more than that. And he's given these offices in the church to do that. He gave the offices, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, and this is what he has given them to do. Verses 12 and 14 of Ephesians 4. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. One of the goals, one of the tasks that those in leadership have is to equip others to be able to do the work that God has called them to do. To help them be able to um, know what their spiritual gift is, to see them exercising and using that spiritual gift so that other people are built up in the faith. Our task, our work is to help you work, if that makes sense. 
And then you see, you see that in verse 12, and then you see also in verse 14, another task. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Our call is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and our call is also to maintain doctrinal truthfulness and stability so that those who are in the body may not be tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a lot of doctrine that's being blown around by the wind these days. And some of it is, I mean, it's all bad, but some of it has very drastic implications um, in our lives. And the goal, we've talked about this, part of the goal of the shepherds of the church is to protect the sheep. And part of protecting the sheep is to help people identify heresy, bad doctrine, faulty teaching. That means that we've got to stay up on what's the latest, what's the latest and greatest heretical teaching that's being circulated among the churches these days. When we talked about many times expressive individualism, the social gospel, the prosperity gospel, these things that are to be outright rejected because they are heretical in their core. And be aware of these things and preach and teach rightly against them. And we also see, though, not only what it is, not only that the offices are given as God by a gift, what it is that they do in verses 12 and 14, but we see really in verse 13 for how long this is going to take place. Part of the argument is that why do we still need pastors, why do we still need elders and deacons to teach and preach the Word of God if the Word of God is closed and completed and I have a Bible? Why can't I not be my own teacher? And the answer to that is quite simply because the Bible says so. Verse 13 of Ephesians 4. How long is this going to happen, right? The, the goal, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until, and now if this is you and you meet this criteria, then you no longer need a teacher or a preacher until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. So if you're completely mature to the fullness of Christ, then I will close my Bible and I will go sit down and you can come and teach because I have not reached that status. I am still in need. Guess what? I'm, the, I'm a pastor of the church. I still need pastoral care. Do you know who provides that pastoral care to me? The other elders, my brothers, Dan and Craig, as we shepherd, as we pastor, as we teach and we admonish and we correct one another. And I praise God for the relationship that I have with these two men, that there is an openness and a, and a genuine relationship there where we can do this. Um, I could talk a lot more about that. But this is how long God has said that this, these offices, that the, that the office of pastor and teacher, elder and deacon are to be in place for until we, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, crafting and deceitful schemes. That's what is going on. And it's until we reach the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. This is God's gift. This is the goal, right? Even in here we see the goal of God giving the gifts of these offices towards the, the maturity 
and the fullness of Christ, our desire is to see people grow into the image of Christ. That's my goal. That's our goal. That's what we pray about. When we take into consideration your prayer requests, we are praying, Lord God, we don't know, you know, I'll be honest with you, we don't always pray that God would take away whatever it is that God is doing in your life that you may not like, because I don't know whether or not that is God's will for him to remove that from your life, or if that is his will to use that in your life to conform you into the image of Christ. The very thing that you want for him to remove may be the very thing that he is using to make you more like the Lord Jesus. Our prayer is, Lord, help us to yield to you and to see your glorious and perfect purposes and all that it is that you do in our lives. Because the goal is maturity into Christ in preparation to enjoy him and worship him and proclaim his excellencies for all of eternity and to actually be looking forward to that day with eager expectation. That's our goal. And so the offices are a gift of God. This, the offices are God's method of soul care, embedded within the call for all believers to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to edify one another, lies the offices ordained by God to help facilitate these things. And so now we want to look to these two offices in particular. And again, there is a lot that Scripture says regarding the office of the deacon and the elder. These are two gifts. We want to we look at these offices as gifts. The gift of the office of deacon and the gift of the office of the elder. And we actually see these two offices established in the book of Acts. If you turn to the book of Acts chapter 6, we're going to start with the office of the deacon. Because this is a little bit shorter and more straightforward. office of the deacon and the first example that we see though the word deacon is not used in acts chapter 6 is believed that that's what is being instituted here as these men are called together for a particular purpose and what is happening is that you see in acts chapter 6 verse 1 now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the hellenists arose against the hebrews because their widows were being neglected by the daily distribution and the twelve, so the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, uh, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And verse 5 tells us who it is that they picked out. Verse 6 tells us that they were set before the apostles. They prayed, they laid their hands on him. And look at what it is that verse 7 says. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. You look at the fruitfulness that comes about by being obedient to God and people properly filling their roles. And they see that there is this practical neglect that's going on with the daily distribution to the various groups of widows. And these men called to serve tables are really the first examples that we see of deacons. And what's interesting is that, uh, unfortunately, in the church, the office of the deacon is looked at as being really kind of like uh, the second-hand, the second-class leadership that these are just the guys that know how to turn a wrench or to, you know, jumpstart a battery, car battery or, or something like that. 
a little practical help. And they are. A large part of the office of the, de- the deacon is are the duties of real practical, hands-on help as we see these men to serve tables. But do you notice how these men are described and what it is that the, that the Scripture implies is even their priority so that they may do their work? They are put in a position to handle some of these practical needs because they see and they understand the value of God's word being preached by those who are gifted to preach it. They see, they know that for, for, the, for the apostles at that time, these are the men who God has called to preach the word and to be devoted to prayer because they value preaching of the word, the gift in the office of preaching of the word and of prayer so much they will completely devote themselves to everything that needs to be done so that these men can do what God has called them to do. And you see the way that they're described. Pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute. These were men who were in, men of integrity and uprightness. They had good reputations, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Are these men spiritual men? Are they Um, heavenly-minded men? Are they men of wisdom? And this is, like, I'm telling you, when you look at what the Bible says about the value and the importance of wisdom, you read the book of Proverbs, you read the end of the book of James, wisdom is always described as being moral. It is never just informational. Wisdom is not never, ever, ever just knowing the right stuff. It is knowing the right stuff so that it transforms you into being a godly person. Deacons were men who knew the truth of God's word well enough, deep enough, that they were actually transformed by it to be men of godliness, integrity, and wisdom. And they freed them, and they wanted to free up those who were called to preach and pray to do their work, to devote themselves to doing it, because it was so valuable to them that they would do what needed to be done to the spiritual work of making sure that the daily distribution of of, of goods was given to each person. And I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in one-on-one personal ministry where like personalities and conflict arise and stuff like that, but you need a spiritually mature person to handle those types of things. We need people in in positions of leadership who are godly and have integrity and spiritual maturity to handle relational conflict, personality conflicts that arise even within church ministries. And if anybody anybody in this room has ever served long enough in any ministry capacity, you know what I'm talking about. goes back to what we're talking about and maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Is that the goal? Is that the objective? We see that in Acts chapter 6, and then we also see the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'm not going to go through all of the qualifications here because you can read those and they're pretty straightforward, but let me first just mention a couple things. Number one, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 talks about these are men of character, which we've already hit on. Secondly, you see in, chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, that they must, they must be men who know the gospel. Chapter, verse 10, 
that they, may be, they must be men that have been tested. How do they handle working in ministry with other people? Be tested and prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their, li- their wives likewise must also be dignified, not slanderers. And it, that bleeds into verse 12. A deacon must be one who can manage his own household well. These are not just, deacons are not just men that, hey, do you got a pulse? Do you know how to use a mop? Can you turn on the lights? Can you handle an air conditioner that works on Wi-Fi? Yeah, deacon, right there, you're good, man. Let's lay our hands on you and set you free. Like, no. These deacons are supposed to be men of uprightness, of godliness. They know the gospel. They manage their household well. They're full of the spirit. They're full of wisdom. These are no second-class men. That's why it is a gift by God to the body for these men to be able to do what they do. And yes, I do believe the office of deacon is reserved for men. And if you have questions about that, we can talk about that later. The gift of deacon is a gift of God to the church. But there's also the gift of the office of the elders. And again, we see this laid out for us in Acts chapter 14. The gift of the elders. Paul would be completing his first missionary journey as it began in Acts chapter 13. He goes around to various cities. He's preaching the gospel. People are responding in faith to know Christ. And... He goes back through on his way back to the church in Antioch, revisiting the churches that he had been previously preaching the gospel, and he installs the office of elders, Acts 14, 23, to oversee those those churches. And Paul then would write letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, specifically regarding these offices of deacon and elder, And the office of the elder was one that had many components to it. And I want us to look at a few things that he notices that he calls out specifically regarding the office of the elder. Number one, before we even look at outwardly what the elders are called to do, Paul actually plays an incredible amount of emphasis on the elder's role to be a self-examiner. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Paul is commending Timothy to be a self-trainer not physically to run some triathlon or to be some sort of particular professional athlete, but spiritually to train himself. Elders are called to be people that examine, train themselves. You look down in verses 15 and 16 in verse of 1 Timothy 4, and his encouragement to Timothy is practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you hear the language of self-examination? Train yourself, examine yourself, immerse yourself, plunge yourself 100% into the work 
uh, growing to be like Christ yourself so that you can be of some good and value in helping others grow to be like Christ as well. If there is a pastor that is not practicing what he preaches, he is a hypocrite. And to some level, we all do. But the call is clear. These men are called to immerse themselves, to examine themselves, to train themselves for this office. And then you would see in chapter 6, verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We are called to pursue these things in particular, again, taking on these things to do with our own personal responsibility. Polycarp was a first century church father who was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he said, he who is made an overseer of the church is himself overseen by Jesus Christ. Overseers have that, that recognition and understanding that we may be called to oversee the church, but we are overseen by Christ himself, the head of the church. Elders are not only supposed to examine themselves, but they're supposed to set an example. You see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That the elders should know that they are called to set an example for others to follow in these areas, in speech, in purity, in love. This gets into the qualifications that he would talk about in 1 Timothy chapter 3 regarding the qualifications for an overseer, for an elder, above reproach. Sober-minded, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. These are qualifications. As the elder examines himself, does he find himself to be fit in these areas? Is he open to examination by his fellow elders? Are you fit to lead and to oversee God's people in these areas? And then there's also not just the self-examination and the call to set an example, but there's the call in 1 Peter chapter 5 of how this is to be done. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us this. I exhort the elders among you. It's Peter's writing to fellow elders. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed Shepherd the flock. Overseers, elders are called to be functional shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. At the verse 4 there, he reminds them there is a chief shepherd that oversees all of the under-shepherds. And the under-shepherds need to be reminded that how they are called to shepherd is not for shameful gain. We're not in it for the money. I don't know if you knew that. Not in it for the money. Dan, Craig, they don't even get paid. Not in it for the money. 
not under compulsion, but willingly. Not domineering. I mean, that's really the form of authority and leadership that we see in the world, and unfortunately, it has more than bled, it has flooded the church. Authority is domineering, overbearing, heavy-handed. That's not the way that God would call his people to lead. Not being domineering of those in your charge, actually be an example to the flock, which brings in all of the other fruit of the Spirit and all that we've talked about of being men of integrity and uprightness. Men like Craig read about in Ezekiel chapter 34, when God himself describes him as the shepherd that goes and, and pursues his own sheep and loves them to life. That's the call of the other under-shepherd. I was thinking about this verse actually this morning. Um, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, he, he relates, uh, I relate the call of pastoral ministry similar to what it is that the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That is, like, pastoral ministry is, is part of men understanding their own weaknesses. We understand that we are able to minister to other people who are weak because we ourselves are beset with weaknesses, tendencies towards sinfulness and, and lustful pride. And because of that, because we are aware of our own sinfulness, we are patient and able to deal with others who are struggling with their own wickedness and their own sinfulness. Because sometimes we're just, there's not a big difference. But still being called to do the task that God has called us to do. You know, there was a time when pastoral ministry was revered, um, appreciated, loved, needed. And it seems today that the, certainly the world, but again, in the minds of many Christians, the role of pastors has been then neglected to those who sit at the kitty table and talk about their old book, about their spiritual things and their God, while the rest of us big adults sit at the table and we talk about our psychoanalytics and our psychiatry and how we're really there to help the problems of mankind. And I think if anybody looks at the history of either of those practices, they would see that there's more confusion these days in those, world, in those realms than there has ever been. What is fundamentally wrong with mankind? It's the scriptures that tell us that. Who understands the scriptures and how to deal with the problems that plague mankind and to bring help and hope to them? But the people who know the Lord Jesus Christ and are constantly setting before them the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. Not a program, not a plan, but a person that redeems them and helps them and loves them and works in their life to grow them and change them because he has created them and fashioned them. The, the elder, the pastor, is the sole physician that is constantly bringing people 
to the person of Jesus Christ for hope and for help and for change. And this is how we do it. We preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 is Paul's admonition for Timothy to preach the word. His call to preach the word with right doctrine so that he may reprove, rebuke, and exhort. He may reprove them, revealing the sinfulness of sin. He may rebuke them, striking the conscience with the truth of God's word. And he may exhort them, encouraging the heart to hear the truth of God's word and to grow and to change and to put off sinfulness and to put on godliness. Preaching the word. And this is what I was thinking about earlier this week. And this will be what will lead us into um, our closing. Paul commands Timothy to preach the word. I was thinking back to what it is that we had read earlier in our series in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26 and 27. And I want to I want to combine I want to put together a few idea two two ideas here. He, of course, he is um, addressing husbands to a degree in Ephesians five. What I want to talk about is his addressing to the husbands because he's actually talking about Christ, what Christ does for the church, which is the context of Ephesians five. So he says, "Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her." having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You think about this. Paul commands Timothy to preach the word. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ washes, cleanses, sanctifies the church, presents her to himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or blemish by the washing of the word. In essence, the elder's job is to preach the word, minister the word, in order to present the bride of Christ to Christ in splendor. That is what we are called to do. That is our goal. It's not behavior modification. It's not to give, get people to give more money, to go on more missions trips, to be more faithful in attending church, to do more, 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 more. It's to preach the word so that the bride of Christ is presented to Christ in splendor so that we might be found faithful to beautifying the bride of Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we do what we do. That's why the office of elder and deacon should be viewed as an enjoyable gift because because we're all looking at this office as saying, this is a gift, God, you have given to me, and I am being by it I am being washed and cleansed and being prepared to be presented to Christ without any spot or wrinkle or blemish or defect. That is what these men want from me in my life. That's what we should be motivated by. And it's my prayer that that is what we are motivated by. Our goal and our desires for the body. Gregory the Great, again, another first century church father, said, The pastor in his zeal should not desire to please others, but should focus on what ought to please them. That's what we're called to do to present to the body what's, what ought to please you, not what does please you. And by much prayer and preaching of the word, in the Holy Spirit, we're praying that God does that work. So you may be thinking to yourself, okay, 
That's good for the elders and the deacons. I understand that more. How can this really apply to my life? I want to just point you to Ephesians, again, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. I'm going to read them and then just leave them in, um, in our minds for contemplation, for prayer and consideration, and then we'll move on to communion. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and verse 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews commands all of us to submit ourselves and to obey our leaders in a way that they are able to lead and shepherd the flock joyfully. Are we people who allow our pastors, our elders, to shepherd the flock joyfully? As we move to the communion table, um, we're reminded of the chief shepherd and his work. I, can t- I, I look at this, I look at these Hebrews passages, and I put myself in that position, and I look at it in terms of I want the chief shepherd to be able to shepherd me joyfully. I don't want to be one of those sheep that's always strained. I don't want to be one of those sheep that bites, that's like this stubborn, old sheep that just persists on having its own way. I want to be a sheep that when the shepherd comes to me and he nudges me with his rod and his staff and he corrects me, I go and I listen and I'm obedient because I love him and I know that he loves me and I trust him because I know that he knows what's best. We come to the table with the chief shepherd in mind. The chief shepherd is who we're all looking to. And yes, he's given us under shepherds, but this is the time where we look to the chief shepherd himself. And then we consider how the chief shepherd lived among us and for us, and then how he explicitly was crucified and died on our behalf. John 10, Jesus tells us, right, I lay my life down for my sheep. He's the good shepherd. And we're reminded of that as we partake of communion today. The cracker represents his broken, his, his body that was offered up for us. His, the juice represents his shed blood. And so this is a time for the believer to worship. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, don't partake. But consider the work of Christ, the suffering on your behalf so that you might know him. Hear the voice of the shepherd calling for salvation. For those of us who do know him, we partake of this as an opportunity for worship. But we do it with with humility and, and we examine ourselves and we confess and we receive the forgiveness. We're reminded of what it is that he's promised to us in this time. So the elements are on the back tables. You can get up and get those and return back to your seat and hold on to them. You'll have a few moments of prayer and we will partake of the communion elements together in just a few moments.